Good morning. If you'd open up uh, to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. I wasn't told that there would be a video of me dancing this morning, so... First service totally threw me off. It was just before I came up here to preach, and so... Second service, a little bit more prepared. Starting in verse 7, Ephesians 1. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, we thank you for your grace that you have poured out on us as we go through this passage, Ephesians 3 through 14, Lord, and we're reminded over and over and over again that our lives completely depend on you giving and giving. Your grace just poured out on us. God, I pray as we go through this message this morning, Lord, we realize that even after salvation, we depend on your grace, Lord. It's grace upon grace upon grace. We praise you, Lord, for revealing your truth to us, to the mysteries of your will, for revealing how it all ends, Lord, so that we would have hope. God, help us not to take these things for granted. Help us to realize how precious your word is. I pray that we're a church always, Lord, that, that it's built off the foundation of the prophets and apostles, Lord, the, the word that you have inspired for us, Lord, and that we always hold it in high regards. Be with us this morning in your son's name. Amen. We've started to look at verses 7 through 12 last week, and this message is going to be a continuation of, of the message last week, week, which talks about, in this present age, Jesus redeeming us. Look at verse 7. It says, in him we have redemption. We really spent the whole entire sermon last week Examining this word redemption, what does redemption mean? I truly believe that we have a false understanding of that word in modern uh, culture. I, re- I was thinking about this. I, I think redemption uh, for most people, and I, I could be wrong, but as I was understanding my understanding away from Scripture, redemption is more like revenge in our culture. When you have redemption in something, um, it's more like revenge, but that's not a biblical understanding of redemption at all. Redemption in Scripture from biblical context and what the, the word means in the biblical uh, whole of Scripture, redemption is paying a ransom in order to release a prisoner from bondage, especially slavery. Or another definition could be someone wealthy buying a slave with the purpose of freeing them from slavery. Look at verse 7 again. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. In him, as Jesus, in Jesus Christ, in him we have redemption. We have been freed from from slavery, from the bondage of sin. In him we have redemption through his blood. That's the cost of our redemption to release us from slavery. The wages of sin is death. The Bible is so clear on this. 
Therefore, it took the death of Jesus to buy us back, to free us, to redeem us. Last week, we saw the grace in redemption. This week, we're going to see that God's grace doesn't stop at salvation. After freeing us, he doesn't just leave us to ourselves. He gives us the means to live in our newfound freedom. 2 Peter 1, 3 says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. He's given us everything we need for life and godliness. So let's look at Ephesians 1, 7 again. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. And God set us free. He didn't leave us to ourselves He gives us the Holy Spirit, which we'll talk about next week, but he also gives us wisdom and insight. He reveals to us the mysteries of his will, and he gives us hope by telling us how it all ends. So that's the three points of our sermon this morning. Wisdom and insight, the mystery of his will, and how it all ends. Hope and how it all ends. So let's start with the first point, wisdom and insight. Look at verse 7 one more time. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. When you first read that in English, it sounds like the wisdom and insight is referring to God's wisdom and insight. In other words, in English it sounds like, and I think most translations make it sound this way, in all of God's wisdom and insight, he lavishes his grace upon us. That's, like again, as most English translations make it sound that way. But I think that's a wrong understanding. Remember, there's no commas or periods to tell us exactly in this one sentence uh, exactly what, what, where things go. But I believe a better understanding is God has lavished on us his grace with all wisdom and insight. Most commentators that I've read agree. People that know Greek a lot better than I do, experts in Greek, seem to all kind of agree with this understanding of this passage. And to help us to get that across, I just want to replace in with with. Right? And that's within the range of meaning for the Greek word there. The, the in with with. Let me just read it again. Verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us with all wisdom and insight. In other words, part of God's grace is that he lavishes upon us all wisdom and insight. In other words, as soon as you submit to Jesus as Lord, you are freed and you're given wisdom and insight. Doesn't mean you're smarter. Your IQ doesn't jump as soon as you become saved, as soon as you become a Christian. Doesn't mean you have more knowledge by, by God's common grace. There are many unbelievers that are extremely knowledgeable. There are many unbelievers, atheists, that know a lot. It simply means you're given wisdom and insight to guide you in your freedom. I want to look at these two words real quick. The first word is wisdom. The Greek word is sophia. 
which emphasizes understanding of ultimate things, such as life, death, God, man, righteousness, and sin, heaven, and hell. Paul is speaking about wisdom concerning the things of God. The second word is insight. The Greek word is phronesis, phronesis, which emphasizes practical understanding, comprehension of the needs, problems, and, and principles of everyday life. It's spiritual discernment in handling daily affairs. One commentator said this, not, God not only forgives us, taking away the sins that corrupt and distort our lives, but he also gives us all the necessary equipment to understand him and walk through, or walk through the, the world day by day in a way that reflects his will and is pleasing to him. He generously gives us the with, or wherewithal both to understand his word and to know how to obey it. In other words, God doesn't just set us free in redemption. He also gives us wisdom and insight to live as free men. I want to give an example of this that I think is clear. Uh, if you would, turn with me to John chapter 9. The Gospel of John chapter 9. If you're familiar with the uh, story of John chapter 9, Jesus heals a blind man. And Jesus healed a lot of blind men. And the purpose of healing bl- blind men was to point to a spiritual truth, as we're going to see in this passage this morning. John 9 Verse 1. As he passed by, this is Jesus, as Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? Well, we've got to understand the disciples' worldview at this point. Right? They believed that the reason people were physically disabled or had a handicap of some sort was because God was punishing them for a particular sin. I want to be clear, that's not true. Right? That's a false belief. New and Old Testament, they should have known better. Just the book of Job right? disproves that. So that disciples with this worldview, this false worldview, asked, who sinned? Him or his parents, because he was born this way. So did he sin somehow in the womb and come out blind? Or did his parents sin and for some reason God punished the child? Jesus answered, verse 3, It was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. That is an amazing statement. Just let that settle in for a second. I'd love to spend a lot of time here, but we need to move on. Look at verse 6. When he, said, when he had said this, he spat on the ground and made clay out of the spittle and applied the clay to his eyes. In Genesis 2, we see that God made man out of dust. He formed man out of dust. Jesus being God made new eyes out of that same dust. Verse 7. And he said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So he went away and washed and came back seeing. Therefore the neighbors and those who previously saw him as a beggar were saying, Is this not the one who used to sit and beg? Others were saying, This is he. Still others were saying, No, but but he is like him. He kept on saying, I am the one. This is just funny to me. 
Right? There's these people arguing, going, was this the blind guy? And they're like, no, he's not the blind guy. No, I'm pretty sure he is. And he's sitting there the whole entire time going, it's me. <laughs> it's me. This becomes the theme of this passage, by the way, as we keep going. No one seems to believe the blind man that he truly was blind and now sees. Look at verse 10. So they were saying to him, how then were your eyes opened? He answered, the man who is called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went away and washed, and I received sight. They said to him, Where is he? He said, I don't know. I do not know. Jesus was gone. And just so you can picture this, Jesus put the, the, the mud, the clay in his eyes, and he went away, washed, and then he saw. So he hasn't seen Jesus yet. And Jesus wasn't there when he turned around and looked for him. Verse 13 they brought to the Pharisees the man who was formerly blind. Why the Pharisees? They were the experts, right? I mean, these people were trying to figure out, well, what happened? Is this Jesus legitimate? Like, is, who is this man? Right? Could he be the Messiah? I, I don't know. So they brought the, him to the experts, right? the people that had knowledge. Skip down to verse 18. The Jews then did not believe it of him that he had been blind and had received sight until they called the parents of the one who had received his sight. So they called this guy's mom and dad. They don't believe him, so they call his mom and dad and asked them, saying, Is this your son, who you say was born blind? Then how does he see now, right? This guy, this poor guy, no one believes him. (laughs) Verse 20. His parents answered them, said, We know that this is our son, and that he was born blind. But how he now sees, we do not know. Or who opened his eyes, we do not know. Ask him. He's of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews. This is sad. His parents knew exactly what happened. They knew Jesus was the one that that healed him. But they were embarrassed. So they took the truth that was obvious to everyone and suppressed it. For the Jews, verse 22, the second part, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. For this reason, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. You know what this is? This is absolutely no conviction. These are people that were confronted with the truth that was obvious to them and only cared about their social status and what people thought of them. Listen, we need to be a church of convictions. We live in a culture that is convictionless, and the pressure is obviously getting stronger against conviction or churches that hold to conviction. And the only way we will get through that pressure as a church is if we have strong convictions. Persecution is coming. These parents had no convictions. And so they said, Ask him. Verse 24. So a second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. In other words, they're saying, We know Jesus is a sinner, so agree with us. 
And at this point, this man has told this story over and over and over and over again. No one is believing him, so he tells it again. Verse 25, he, the blind, blind man, formerly blind, then answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. Simple truth. So they said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too, do you? Now it's hard to read what kind of tone this person said this in. A lot of people thought say that he's being sarcastic here. I honestly think he, he, he's being genuine. He might be saying, do you guys want to be his disciples? Is that why you're asking me to tell this story over and over again? Well, of course, the Pharisees didn't respond to that very well. Look at verse 28. They reviled him and said, you are his disciples, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he is from. Now, this is amazing. The Pharisees had God standing right in front of them. And they say, we don't know where he's from. Look at verse 30. The man answered and said to them, well, here is an amazing thing. (laughs) Right? It clicks for the man, I think, for the first time, that he wasn't, for the first time ever, he wasn't the one that was blind. He could see. And the Pharisees were blind. The truth was so obvious, and they were blind. And you know why they were blinded? Because they didn't want the truth. They didn't want to believe the truth, so they took the truth that was obvious and started suppressing it the best way they could, just like the parents. Well, here is an amazing thing, that you do not know where he is from, and yet he opened my eyes. I want you to hear this man's logic, right? Wisdom and insight. Verse 31, we know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he hears him. Since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man was, were, were not from God, he could do nothing. In other words, it's obvious he's from God. I mean, Jesus not only healed blind men, he would go to cities and heal everyone. The truth was right there in the Pharisees' face. They didn't want it. Verse 34, they answered him, you were born entirely in sin, and you're teaching us? And they put him out. In other words, the Pharisees just resorted to name calling. You're a sinner, get out of here. Verse 35, Jesus heard that they had put him out, and finding him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? And he answered, who is he? And just remember, he hasn't seen Jesus yet. He answered, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, You have both seen him. I'm right here. You're you're seeing me with your new eyes. You have both seen him, and he is the one who is talking with you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. That's the proper response, right? He worshipped Jesus. Jesus never stops anyone from worshipping him. Every man in the New Testament, in the Old Testament, when someone worships a man like Peter or Paul, the first thing they say is, don't worship me. 
that Jesus lets people worship him because that's the proper response. And everyone in the Gospels that were so confused in who Jesus was, the Pharisees, the people, even his own disciples, this man worshiped him. The Pharisees had knowledge. Probably had the whole Old Testament memorized. I mean, they knew the scriptures well. But they were completely spiritually blind. Yet this blind man, probably a beggar his whole entire life, had very little knowledge, was given sight, not just physical sight, but spiritual sight. He was given wisdom and insight. I mean, think about that. In one moment... In healing him, he had more wisdom and insight than the Pharisees who were well-studied and religious experts. Verse 39, And Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, so that those who do not see may see. Right? Those humble enough to say, I'm blind and I need sight, they may see. And that those who see, the proud that think they, they know, the proud that think they can see, the Pharisees, may become blind. Verse 40, those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and said to him, we are not blind too, are we? Now again, it's hard to read tone. And a lot of people think that they were being sarcastic. You know, we're blind, right? I don't think so. I think the truth was so obvious, they knew they were blind, but they would not let go of their pride. Jesus said to them, if you were blind, in other words, if you knew you needed sight, if you truly submitted and said that you needed sight, you would have no sin. In other words, you'd be forgiven. Why? Because you would trust me. You would turn to me. But since you say we see, your sin remains. You know, this is exactly what Paul was talking about in Romans 1. Romans 1, 20. One says, for although they knew God. I mean, who knew God better than the Pharisees? They were standing face to face with Jesus. Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but, their, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. In other words, they became blinder and blinder and blinder. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creepy things. In other words, they exchanged Jesus, the glory of the immortal God, for the pride of life, for idols. For idols of fame, idol of popularity, idol of prestige, for self-worship. But the blind man, because of his humility, he trusted in Jesus. And he was able to see both physically, but more importantly, he was able to see spiritually. The physical healing only pointed to the spiritual. God offers anyone that's spiritually blind sight. In verse 38, he said to to Jesus, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. The blind man was given sight. He was given wisdom and insight. He knew who Jesus was. He worshipped him. Listen, before salvation, we all were spiritually blind. We all were spiritually blind, blinded by our pride and sin. But those who have been redeemed, those who have been saved, those who have been freed from the bondage and slavery of sin are given sight, spiritual sight. 
He gives us wisdom and insight. In other words, he doesn't just leave us to ourselves. He gives and gives and gives. He gives everyone everything they need for life and godliness. He gives you wisdom and insight, and he doesn't just give you that. He also gives you the mystery of his will. The mystery of his will. Turn back to Ephesians 1, chapter 9. This leads us to our second point this morning, the mystery of his will. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 9. Making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. The mystery of his will. That word mystery is used in Scripture. When it's used in Scripture, it typically is referring to something that was unknown in the past that has been revealed to us in the New Testament. Not always, but typically that's what that word means. Simply a truth that was once hidden, that we wouldn't known, but now has been made known by God's revelation. So look at verse 9 again. Making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. In other words, from eternity past, God the Father treasured in his own mind a plan. And that plan would be carried out by Christ. And this plan was revealed to us. You know how privileged you are this morning? To know what you know? I think we, you know, we grow up in the church and we don't realize that it's a privilege, it's a blessing, it's grace to know what we know. I want you to understand how blessed you are. The whole purpose of spending such a a long time in verses 3 through 14 is that we as a church understand how blessed we are. You've been given a clear picture of the plan of redemption. More so than, than any other Old Testament saint has ever had. 1 Peter 1.10 actually says this, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. In other words, Old Testament prophets had faith. They had faith in this coming seed, this coming Messiah, but they didn't know the full extent of God's grace, mercy, and love. So they searched and inquired carefully. In other words, they studied their own writings. Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. They studied their own writings, and they probably studied each other's writings, searching. Right? They wanted to know more about the salvation that God was going to do. How is he going to do it? It even says in verse 12, 1 Peter 1, 12, things into which angels long to look. Even the angels wanted to know. And think how blessed we are. We have the mysteries of his will. We know he sent his son, God's own son, second member of the Trinity, to take our place to die a horrific death on the cross, to be raised on the third day, providing salvation for everyone who believes. The Old Testament saints didn't have these details. We do. Listen, this knowledge should produce confidence, not in ourselves, but in the love of God. Boldness in our faith. Paul asked the question, what shall we do, or what shall we say to these things? 
In Romans 8, 31, he says, What shall we say to these saints? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give, up, give us all things? We New Testament states, we have a greater understanding of God's love, justice, mercy, and holiness than any Old Testament saint. This is why Jesus says in Matthew 11, Laughlin, truly, truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no greater than John the Baptist. Out of all the Old Testament saints, out of everyone that has lived up to this point, John the Baptist has been the greatest. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Because we have more revelation than John the Baptist even had. Pause another question in verse 33, Romans 8, 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Jesus is interceding for us. Jesus is praying for us right now. These mysteries revealed to us. What a privilege it is to know this. How much confidence and boldness should this produce in us? He asks another question, Paul. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulations or or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, it's in all things We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure. How are you sure, Paul? How are you sure? How do you you know? How are you so confident? Because he knows the extent of God's grace. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angel, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. If God has given us his son, what won't he give us? Listen. God not only has given us wisdom and insight, he has revealed to us the mysteries of his will. In scripture, once hidden, now known, that God sent his own son to die on the cross for our sins something the Old Testament prophets didn't know, something that, that, that the angels longed to look into, and we have it in our hands. How blessed are we? God's grace just poured out on us over and over and over again. And it doesn't stop there. He even shows us how it all ends. And he shows us how it all ends to, to give us hope. To give us hope. And that's the third point of our sermon this morning. How it all ends. Look at Ephesians 1.10. As a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. God not only has redeemed us and forgiven us, not only does he give us wisdom and insight, Not only does he reveal to us the mysteries of his will, but he also tells us how it all ends. He gives us the ending. 
so that we should have hope. Look at verse 10. Again, to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. What does all things in heaven and earth encompass? Well, at least two things. First, redeem souls. Right, Christians. We are already united with him. We're his body. We're in him. But second, the created universe. Look at verse 10. To unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Turn with me to Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. And just so you know, if you're not familiar with this, Colossians was probably written during the same time Ephesians was written, or very close to it. And these letters parallel each other very well. They're very similar as you go through them. And what's neat about that is when there's something in Colossians, sometimes Ephesians elaborates on it, and sometimes in Colossians, there's sayings in Ephesians that Colossians elaborates on it, so you get a fuller meaning of what Paul is saying. I think it's one of the times that Colossians, Paul elaborates a little bit more on verse 10 in, in, in Ephesians here in Colossians. So Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 says this, He, that's Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church. In other words, he brings unity to the church. Right? The church is his body. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of of his cross. It's through Christ's blood that we have redemption. We saw this last week that Jesus has bought us out of slavery, has set us free from the bondage of sin. But listen, one day God will redeem all of creation. Creation itself will be set free from bondage and have peace. Look at verse 20 again. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. All things on heaven and earth will be united in Christ. I like how Kent Hughes comments on this. He says this, Thus all redeemed souls, all the universe, and all the faithful angelic hosts Literally everything in heaven and on earth, everything material, everything spiritual, everything within, without, above, below, will be united in Christ. This is the blessing of the universe. In the future, in the end times, God will remove every pain, evil, sorrow, suffering, disease, rebellious person, rebellious angel, and we will live in complete peace. In a new heaven, a new earth, and a everlasting joy. Christians, we have hope. We have hope. Actually, turn with me, if you would, to Romans 8, verse 18. Romans 8, verse 18.
I hope you're feeling blessed as we've been going through Ephesians. I know that Ephesians 3 through 14 has just encouraged me on how good God is. I've said this before. I feel like it's just emboldened me to live more sacrificially and, and more boldly. What do I have to fear? Look what it says in Romans 8.18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. That is an incredible statement. You know why that's an incredible statement? Because when I look at the world, I see a lot of suffering. As a pastor, I see a lot of death. I see a lot of struggling. I see a lot of pain. I see disease, cancer. On the news, you turn on the news, you see war, sorrows, riot, poverty, hunger, rape, mass shootings. There's an enormous amount of suffering in this world, but look at what Paul says in verse 18. For I consider that the suffering of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us. Listen, if you're suffering this morning, have hope. Your suffering does not compare to what is going to be revealed to us. And listen, I say this, I say this, not making light of your suffering. I say this to make much of the joy we will have. One commentator said this, Weighed in the scales of true and lasting value, the sufferings endured in this life are light indeed compared with the splendor of the next life to come. Therefore, Christians have hope. (laughs) Have hope. We are redeemed. We are set free from the bondage of sin. And we look forward to a future glory that's beyond our comprehension. The effects of sin just gone. You know what? It's not just us that hopes. It's not just us that eagerly awaits. Look at verse 19. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Adam's sin had a ripple effect that affected all of creation. The perfect paradise became a fallen world as soon as he sinned. Nature became a victim. And and, and I just want to be clear, nature never rebelled against God. Adam did, we did, humans did. They became a victim of decay, death, corruption, and frustration. And now nature eagerly awaits its day of redemption. Paul personifies nature in this passage. Look at verse 21. In hope, creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. 
In other words, Jesus not only has redeemed us, but one day he will redeem creation itself. One commentator said this, Nature's destiny is inseparably linked to that of man. Because of man's sin, creation fell. When man is restored to to the glorious state that God has planned for his children, creation will likewise be restored. There will be a new heavens and a new earth, an uncursed, infinitely glorious domain that perfectly reflects God's glory. Ephesians 1.10, as the plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. We have hope. We have hope of a glorious future. No more death, pain, suffering, loss, tears. No more pollution, decay, frustration. No more weeds. You grew up in Tehachapi, you know what I'm saying. All things will be renewed and united in Christ. Colossians 1.16, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. All to the glory of God. Listen, we are blessed. Ephesians 3-14, through 14, we are blessed. God has poured out grace upon grace upon grace, giving, giving, giving to the glory of God. It's all for the glory of God. That's why God has made us. Ways created us. Chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Therefore, God has redeemed us and set us free from the bondage of sin. But He doesn't leave us to ourselves. He has given us wisdom and insight. He has revealed to us the mysteries of His will, and He has told us how it all ends so that we would have hope. God is so gracious. He is the great giver. He is the great giver, giving us everything we need for life and godliness. I want to end with this. It's actually where we started. If you would turn with me to Revelations chapter 21. Revelations chapter 21. I I just think we get Revelation wrong. I think we get it wrong because we're not persecuted. Revelation was written to a persecuted church. We, Christians in America, who haven't faced much persecution, we read Revelation as a hobby, trying to figure out what details are going on around our lives right now. Those that were persecuted read Revelation as hope. That's how Revelation was meant to be read. Revelation is 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. This is the way it was meant to be. Creation back to to the way it was intended in the garden. God walking with man. Verse 4. He will wipe away every tear 
from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. I look forward to that day. Listen, if you're not saved this morning, I want to be clear. Right? This hope is for Christians. You could have the same hope. Put your faith in Christ this morning. He died on the cross, lived a perfect life, died on the cross for your sins, and was raised on the third day, and will come back. Amen. Trust in him this morning. I'd love to talk with you if you don't know the gospel message. If you want to put your faith in him, God could hear your thoughts right now. Just pray. Pray to him. For us Christians, we have hope, and this hope is to encourage us to live boldly and sacrificially. Sacrificially loving each other within the church and living boldly for the glory of God. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, God, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for the grace that you have poured out in my life, Lord. Freeing me from the bondage of sin. Giving me salvation, Lord. Changing my heart. Giving me spiritual sight. Taking my dead soul and giving me life. And you didn't stop there. Give me wisdom and insight. You've given me your word. So then I have something to live by, something to live for, Lord, and you've given us hope. You've given me hope, Lord, of a glorious future. That our lives aren't purposeless. They have purpose in you to glorify you. And one day that will come true where you are glorified in front of everyone. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And everything will be united in worship of you. God, help me, help all of us, help us as a church to live boldly because of the hope we have. To live sacrificially because of the hope we have. To reach the nations knowing that if you've given us your son, what else would you not give us? Our lives are in your hands. Why do we fear to live as Christ, to die as gain? Lord, as I see persecution coming, Lord, help us to hold strongly to these convictions. Make your word our foundation. And help us to be light to this lost world. In your son's name, amen.